Hello, wonderful listeners and readers. Today, I am hoping that we'll be able to finish book two in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which means we are going to be reading three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Let's dive in. Chapter 12. Katie was ashamed to stay in the neighborhood after Johnny's great spree. A good many of the neighbor's husbands were no better than Johnny, of course, but that was no standard for Katie. She wanted the Nolans to be better and not as good as anybody. Two, there was the question of money, although it was no question because they had very little, and now there were two children. Katie looked around for a place where she could work for their rent. At least they'd have a roof over their heads. She found a house where she would get rent free in return for keeping it clean. Johnny swore that he wouldn't have his wife a janitress. Katie told him in her new, crisp, hard way that it was janitor or no home as it was harder and harder each month to get the rent money together. Johnny finally gave in after promising that he would do all the janitor work until he got a steady job when they would move again. Katie packed up their few belongings, a double bed, the baby's crib, a busted down baby buggy, a green plush parlor suite, a carpet with pink roses, a pair of parlor lace curtains, a rubber plant and a rose geranium, a yellow canary in a gilt cage, a plush picture album, a kitchen table and some chairs, a box of dishes and pots and pans, a gilt crucifix with a music box in its base that played Ave Maria when you wound it up, a plain wooden crucifix that her mother had given her, a wash basket full of clothes, a roll of bedding, a pile of Johnny's sheet music, and two books, the Bible and the complete works of William Shakespeare. There was such a little bit of stuff that the Iceman could load it all on his wagon and his one shaggy horse could pull it. The four Nolans rode along on the ice wagon to their new home. The last thing Katie did in their old home after it had been stripped bare and had that look of a nearsighted man with his glasses off was to rip up the tin can bank. It had $3.80 in it. Out of that, she knew regretfully, she would have to give the Iceman a dollar for moving them. The first thing she did in the new home, while Johnny was helping the Iceman carry in the furniture, was to nail down the bank in a closet. She put $2.80 back in it. She added a dime from the few pennies in her worn purse. That was the dime she wasn't going to give the Iceman. In Williamsburg, it was the custom to treat the movers to a pint of beer when they had completed their job. But Katie reasoned, we'll never see him again. Besides, the dollar is enough. 
Think of all the ice he'd have to sell to make a dollar. While Katie was putting up the lace curtains, Mary Romilly came over and sprinkled the rooms with holy water to drive out any devils that might be lurking in the corners. Who knows? Protestants might have been living there before. A Catholic might have died in the rooms without the last absolution of the church. The holy water would purify the home again so that God might come in if he chose. The baby Francie crowed with delight as her grandmother held up the crouet and the sun shone through it and made a small fat rainbow on the opposite wall. Mary smiled with the child and made the rainbow dance. Shoin, shoin, she said. Shame, shame, repeated Francie and held out her two hands. Mary let her hold the half-filled crouet while she went to help Katie. Francie was disappointed because the rainbow went away. She thought it must be hidden in the bottle. She poured the holy water out into her lap, expecting a rainbow to come slithering from the bottle. Later, Katie noticed that she was wet and paddled her softly, telling her she was too big to wet her pants. Mary explained about the holy water. Ay, the child has but blessed herself and a spanking comes from the blessing. Katie laughed then. Francie laughed because her mama wasn't mad anymore. Neely exposed his three teeth in a baby laugh. Mary smiled at them all and said it was good luck to start life in a new home with laughter. They were settled by supper time. Johnny stayed with the children while Katie went to the grocery store to establish credit. She told the grocer she had just moved into the neighborhood and would he trust her with a few groceries until Saturday payday? The grocer obliged. He gave her a bag of groceries and a little book in which he jotted down her indebtedness. He told her she was to bring the book along each time she came to trust. With that little ceremony, Katie's family was assured of food until the next money came in. After supper, Katie read the babies to sleep. She read a page of the introduction to Shakespeare and a page of begats from the Bible. That was as far as she had gotten to date. Neither the babies nor Katie understood what it was all about. The reading made Katie very drowsy, but doggedly she finished the two pages. She covered the babies carefully, then she and Johnny went to bed too. It was only eight o'clock, but they were tired out from moving. The Nolans slept in their new home on Lorimer Street, which was still in Williamsburg, but almost near where Greenpoint began. Chapter 13 Lorimer Street was more refined than Bogart Street. It was peopled by letter carriers, firemen, and those store owners who were affluent enough not to have to live in the rooms in back of the store. The flat had a bathroom. The tub was an oblong wooden box lined with zinc. Francie couldn't get over the wonder of it when it was filled with water. 
It was the largest body of water she had seen up to that time. To her baby eyes, it looked like an ocean. They liked the new home. Katie and Johnny kept the cellar, halls, the roof, and the sidewalk before the house spotlessly clean in return for their rent. There was no air shaft. There was a window in each bedroom and three each in the kitchen and the front room. The first autumn there was pleasant. The sun came in all day long. They were warm that first winter too. Johnny worked fairly steadily, did not drink much, and there was money for coal. When summer came, the children spent most of the day outdoors on the stoop. They were the only children in the house, so there was always room on the stoop. Francie, who was going on four, had to mind Neely, who was going on three. She sat for long hours on the stoop with her thin arms hugging her thin legs and her straight brown hair blowing in the slow breeze that came laden with the salt smell of the sea. The sea which was so nearby and which she had never seen. She kept an eye on Neely as he scrambled up and down the steps. She sat rocking to and fro, wondering about many things. What made the wind blow, and what was grass, and why Neely was a boy instead of a girl like her? Sometimes Francie and Neely sat regarding each other with steady eyes. His eyes were the same as hers in shape and depth, but his were a bright clear blue, and hers were a dark clear gray. There was steady, unbroken communication between the two children. Neely spoke very little, and Francie spoke a lot. Sometimes Francie talked and talked until the genial little boy fell asleep, sitting upright on the steps with his head against the iron rail. Francie did stitching that summer. Katie brought her a square of goods for a penny. It was the size of a lady's handkerchief and had a design outlined on it a sitting Newfoundland dog with its tongue lolling out. Another penny bought a small reel of red embroidery cotton, and two cents went for a pair of small hoops. Francie's grandmother taught her how to work the running stitches. The child became adept at stitching. Women passing by would cluck in pitying admiration at the tiny girl a deep line already showing at the inner edge of her right eyebrow, pushing the needle in and out of the taut material while Neely hung over her to watch the bright silver of steel disappear like magic and then come back up again through the cloth. Sissy gave her a fat little cloth strawberry for cleaning the needle. When Neely got restless, Francie let him push the needle through the strawberry for a while. You were supposed to stitch a hundred or so of these squares and then sew them together to make a bedspread. Francie heard that some ladies had actually made a bedspread that way, and that was Francie's great ambition. But though she worked intermittently on the square all summer, Autumn found it only half done. The bedspread would have to be saved for the future. 
The fall came again, winter, spring, and summer. Francie and Neely kept getting bigger. Katie kept working harder, and Johnny worked a little less and drank a little more with each season. The reading went on. Sometimes Katie skipped a page when she was tired at night, but most of the time she stuck with it. They were in Julius Caesar now, and the stage direction, Alarum, confused Katie. She thought it had something to do with fire engines, and whenever she came to the word, she shouted out, Clang! Clang! The children thought it was wonderful. Pennies accumulated in the tin can bank. Once it had to be ripped open and two dollars taken out to pay the druggist the time Francie ran a rusty nail into her knee. A dozen times one prong was unfastened and a needle fished out with a knife to provide Johnny with car fare to get to a job. But the rule was that he had to put 10 cents back out of his tip money, so the bank profited. On the warm days, Francie played alone on the streets or on the stoop. She yearned for playmates, but did not know how to make friends with the other little girls. The other youngsters avoided her because she talked funny. Owing to Katie's nightly reading, Francie had a queer way of saying things. Once, when taunted by a youngster, she had retorted, Ah, you don't know what you're saying. You just full of sound and fury, sig of flying nothing. Once, trying to make friends with a little girl, she said, Wait here, and I'll go in and begat my rope, and we'll play jumping. You mean you'll get your rope, the little girl corrected. No, I'll begat my rope. You don't get things, you begat things. What's that, begat? asked the little girl, who was just five years old. Begat, like Eve begat Cain. You're buggy. Ladies don't get canes. Only men get canes when they can't walk good. Eve begat. She begat Abel, too. She gets or she don't get. You know what? What? You talk just like a wop. I do not talk like no wop, cried Francie. I talk like, like God talks. You'll be struck down dead saying a thing like that. I won't e neither. Nobody home upstairs in your house. The little girl tapped her forehead. There is so. Why do you talk like that then? My mother reads those things to me. Nobody home upstairs in your mother's house, corrected the little girl. Well, anyhow, my mother ain't a dirty slob like your mother. That was the only reply Francie could think of. The little girl had heard this many times. She was shrewd enough not to debate it. Well, I'd sooner have a dirty slob for a mother than a crazy woman. And I'd rather have no father than a drunken man for my father. Slob, 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 shouted Francie passionately. Crazy, 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 chanted the little girl. Slob, 
dirty slob, screamed Francie, sobbing in her impotence. The little girl skipped away, her fat curls bouncing in the sun, and sang in a clear high voice, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. When I die, you will cry for all the names you called me. And Francie did cry, not for all the names called, but because she was lonesome and nobody wanted to play with her. The rougher children found Francie too quiet, and the better behaved ones seemed to shun her. Dimly, Francie felt that it wasn't all her fault. It had something to do with Aunt Sissy, who came to the house so often. The way Sissy looked, and the way the men in the neighborhood looked after Sissy when she passed. It had something to do with the way Papa couldn't walk straight sometimes and walked sideways down the street when he came home. It had something to do with the way neighbor women asked her questions about Papa and Mama and Sissy. Their wheedling offhand questions did not deceive Francie. Had not Mama warned her, don't let the neighbors pick on you. So, in the warm summer days, the lonesome child sat on her stoop and pretended disdain for the group of children playing on the sidewalk. Francie played with imaginary companions and made believe that they were better than real children, but all the while her heart beat in rhythm to the poignant sadness of the song the children sang while walking around in a ring with hands joined. Walter, Walter, wildflower, growing up so high. As we are all young ladies, we are, we very sure to die. Excepting Lizzie Weiner, who is the finest flower. Hide, hide, hide for shame. Turn your back and tell your beau's name. They paused while the chosen girl, after much coaxing, finally whispered a boy's name. Francie wondered what name she'd give if they ever asked her to play. Would they laugh if she whispered Johnny Nolan? The little girls whooped when Lizzie whispered a name. Again, they joined hands and walked around in a circle, genially advertising the boy. Hermie Bachmeyer is a fine young man. He comes to the door with his hat in his hand. Down comes she all dressed in silk. Tomorrow, tomorrow, the wedding shall begin. The girls stopped and clapped their hands joyously. Then, without motivation, there was a change in mood. The girls went around the ring slower and with lowered heads. Mother, mother, I am sick. Send for the doctor, quick, quick, quick. Doctor, doctor, shall I die? Yes, my darling, by and by. How many coaches shall I have? Enough for you and your family, too. In other neighborhoods, there were different words to the song, but essentially it was the same game. No one knew where the words had come from. Little girls learned them from other little girls, and it was the most frequently played game in Brooklyn. There were other games. There were jacks that two little girls could play together, sitting on the steps of a stoop. Francie played jacks by herself, 
first being Francie and then her opponent. She would talk to the imaginary player. I'm for threesies and you're for twosies, she'd say. Potsy was a game that the boys started and the girls finished. A couple of boys would put a tin can on the car track and sit along the curb and watch with a professional eye as the trolley wheels flattened the can. They'd fold it and put it on the track again. Again, it was flattened, folded, and flattened again. Soon, there was a flat, heavy square of metal. Numbered squares were marked off on the sidewalk, and the game was turned over to the girls, who hopped on one foot, pushing the potsy. Excuse me. The girls hopped on one foot, pushing the potsy from square to square. Whoever got through the squares with the least number of hops won the game. Francie made a potsy. She put a can on the tracks. She watched with a professional frown as the car ran over it. She shuddered in delighted horror when she heard the scrunch. Would the motorman be mad, she wondered, if he knew she was making his trolley car work for her? She made the squares, but could only write one and seven. She hopped through a game ardently wishing someone was playing with her, as she was sure she won with less hops than any other little girl in the world. Sometimes there was music in the streets. This was something that Francie could enjoy without companions. A three-piece band came around once a week. They wore ordinary suits but funny hats, like a motorman's hat, only the top was squashed in. When Francie heard the children shouting, Here comes the Beetle, beetle Bubbers! Here comes the Beetle Bubbers! She'd run out on the street, sometimes dragging Neely with her. The band consisted of a fiddle, drum, and cornet. The men played old Viennese airs, and if they didn't play well, they at least played loud. Little girls waltzed with each other round and round on the warm summer sidewalks. There were always two boys who did a grotesque dance together, mimicking the girls and bumping into them rudely. When the girls got angry, the boys would bow with great exaggeration, being sure their buttocks would bump another dancing couple and apologize in flowery language. Francie wished she could be one of the brave ones who took no part in the dancing but stood close to the horn blower sucking noisily on big dripping pickles. This made saliva flow into the horn, which made the cornet player very angry. If provoked enough, he'd let out a string of oaths in German, ending with something that sounded like Gott verdammt Erlendinger Jude. Most Brooklyn Germans had a habit of calling everyone who annoyed them a Jew. Francie was fascinated by the money angle. After two songs, the fiddle and horn carried on alone, while the drummer went around, hat in hand, ungraciously accepting the pennies doled out to him. After canvassing the street, he'd stand on the curb's edge and look up at the house windows. Women wrapped two pennies in a bit of newspaper and tossed them down. The newspaper was essential. 
Any pennies thrown loose were considered fair game by the boys, and they scrambled for them, picking them up and ran off down the street with an angry musician after them. For some reason, they wouldn't try to get the wrapped pennies. They'd pick them up sometimes and hand them to the musicians. It was some sort of code that made them agree as to whose pennies were whose. If the musicians got enough, they'd play another song. If the take was meager, they'd move on, hoping for greener fields. Francie, usually dragging Neely along, often followed the musicians from stop to stop, street to street, until it got dark and time for the musicians to disband. Francie was but one of a crowd as many children followed the band, Pied Piper fashion. Many of the little girls towed baby brothers and sisters along, some in homemade wagons, others in busted-down baby buggies. The music cast such a spell over them that they forgot about home and eating. And the little babies cried, wet their pants, slept, woke to cry again, wet their pants again, and went to sleep again. And the beautiful blue daboom, Danube, played on and on. Fancy thought the musicians had a fine life. She made plans. When Neely got bigger, he would play the hot hot, his name for an accordion, and she would bang a tambourine on the street, and people would throw them pennies, and they'd get rich, and Mama wouldn't have to work anymore. Although she followed the band, Francie liked the organ grinder better. Every once in a while, a man came around, lugging a small organ with a monkey perched atop it. The monkey wore a red jacket with gold braid and a red pillbox hat strapped under his chin. His red pants had a convenient hole in them so that his tail could stick out. Francie loved that monkey. She'd give him her precious penny for candy just for the happiness of seeing him tip his hat to her. If Mama was around, she'd come out with a penny that should have gone in the tin can bank and give it to the man with sharp instructions not to mistreat his monkey. And if he did and she found out, she would report him. The Italian never understood a word she said and always made the same answer. He pulled off his hat, bowed humbly with a little crook of the leg, and called out eagerly, See, see. The big organ was different. When that came around, it was like a fiesta. The organ was pulled by a dark, curly-haired man with very white teeth. He wore green velveteen pants and a brown corduroy jacket from which hung a red bandana handkerchief. He wore one hoop earring. The woman who helped him pull the organ wore a swirling red skirt and a yellow blouse and large hoop earrings. The music tinkled out shrilly, a song from Carmen or Il Truvatore. Il Truvatore? The woman shook a dirty, beribboned tambourine and listlessly punched it with her elbow in time to the music. At the end of a song, she'd twirl suddenly, showing her stout legs and dirty white cotton stockings and a flash of multicolored petticoats. Francie never noticed the dirt and the lassitude. She heard the music and saw the flashing colors and felt the glamour of a picturesque people. 
Katie warned her never to follow the big organ. Katie said that those organ grinders who dressed up so were Sicilians, and all the world knew that the Sicilians belonged to the Black Hand, and that the Black Hand Society always kidnapped little children and held them for ransom. They took the child and left a note saying to leave a hundred dollars in the cemetery and signed it with the black imprint of a hand. And that's that's what Mama said about those organ grinders. For days after the organ grinder had been around, Francie played organ grinder. She hummed what she recalled a Verde and pumped her elbow on an old pie tin, pretending it was a tambourine. She ended the game by drawing an outline of her hand on paper and filling it in with black crayon. Sometimes Francie wavered. She didn't know whether it would be better to be in a band when she grew up or an organ grinder lady. It would be nice if she and Neely could get a little organ and a cute monkey. All day they could have fun with him for nothing and go around playing and watching him tip his hat and people would give them a lot of pennies and the monkey would eat with them and maybe sleep in her bed at night. This profession seemed so desirable that Francie announced her intentions to Mama, but Katie threw cold water on the project, telling her not to be silly, that monkeys had fleas and she wouldn't allow a monkey in one of her clean beds. Francie toyed with the idea of being a tambourine lady, but then she'd have to be Sicilian and kidnap little children, and she didn't want to do that although drawing a black hand was fun. There was always the music. There were songs and dancing on the Brooklyn streets in those long ago summers, and the days should have been joyous. But there was something sad about those summers, something sad about the children, thin in body, but with the baby curves still lingering in their faces, singing in sad monotony as they went through the figures of a ring game. It was sad the way they were still babies of four and five years of age, but so pre precocious about taking care of themselves. The blue Danube that the band played was sad as well as bad. The monkey had sad eyes under his bright red cap. The organ grinder's tune was sad under its lilting shrillness. Even the minstrels who came in the backyards and sang, if I had my way, you would never grow old, were sad too. They were bums and they were hungry and they didn't have talent for song making. All they had in the world was the nerve to stand in a backyard with cap in hand and sing loudly. The sad thing was in the knowing that all their nerve would get them nowhere in the world, and that they were lost, as all people in Brooklyn seem to be lost, when the day is nearly over, and even though the sun is still bright, it is thin and doesn't give you warmth when it shines on you. Chapter 14 Life was pleasant in Lorimer Street. 
And the Nolans would have kept living there if it hadn't been for Aunt Sissy and her big but mistaken heart. It was Sissy's business with the tricycle and the balloons that ruined and disgraced the Nolans. One day, Sissy was laid off from work and decided to go over and look after Francie and Neely while Katie was working. A block before she got to their house, her eyes were dazzled by the sun glinting off the brass handlebar of a handsome tricycle. It was the kind of vehicle that you don't see nowadays. It had a wide leather seat, big enough for two little children, with a back to it and an iron steering bar leading to the small front wheel. There were two larger wheels in the back. There was a handlebar of solid brass on top the steering rod. The pedals were in front of the seat, and a child sat in it, at ease, pedaled it while leaning back in the seat, and steered it with the handlebars, which lay across the lap. Sissy saw that tricycle standing there, unattended, in front of a stoop. She didn't hesitate. She took the tricycle, pulled it around to the Nolan house, got the children out, and gave them a ride. Francie thought it was wonderful. She and Neely sat in the seat and Sissy pulled them around the block. The leather seat was warm from the sun and had a rich and expensive smell. The hot sun danced on the brass handlebar and it looked like living fire. Francie thought that if she touched it, it would burn her hand, surely. Then something happened. A small crowd bore down on them, headed by a hysterical woman and a bawling boy. The woman rushed at Sissy, yelling, Robber! She grabbed the handlebars and pulled. Sissy held on tightly. Francie almost got thrown out. The cop on the beat came rushing up. What's this? What's this? Thus he took over. This lady is a robber, reported the woman. She stole my little boy's tricycle. I didn't steal it, Sergeant, said Sissy in her soft, appealing voice. It was just standing there and standing there, so I borrowed it to give the kids a ride. They never rode in such a fine tricycle. You know what a ride means to a kid. It's just heaven. The cop stared at the mute children in the seat. Francie grinned at him in trembling panic. I was only going to ride them once around the block and then take it back. Honest, Sarge. The cop let his eyes rest on Sissy's well-shaped bust, which was not spoiled any by the tight waist that she liked to wear. He turned to the harassed mother. Why do you want to be so stingy for, lady? He said. Let her give the kids a ride around the block. It ain't no skin off your teeth. Only he didn't say teeth to the snickering delight of the youngsters clustered around. Let her give them a spin and I'll see to it that you get the bike back safe. He was the law. What could the woman do? The cop gave the bawling kid a nickel and told him to shut up. He dispersed the crowd very simply by telling them he'd send for the pie wagon and take them all down to the station house if they didn't 23 skidoo. <laughs> the crowd scattered. 
The cop, swinging his club, gallantly escorted Sissy and her charges around the block. Sissy looked up at him and smiled into his eyes, whereupon he stuck his club in his belt and insisted on pulling the bike for her. Sissy trotted along beside him on her tiny high-heeled shoes and cast a spell over him with her soft, fluttering voice. They walked around the block three times, the cop pretending not to notice the hands that went up to hide smiles, as the people saw a fully uniformed officer of the law so engaged. He talked warmly to Sissy, mostly about his wife, who was a good woman, you understand, but, you know, a kind of invalid. Sissy said she understood. After the bike episode, people talked. They talked enough about Johnny coming home drunk once in a while, and about how the men looked at Sissy. Now they had this to add on. Katie thought of moving. It was getting like Bogart Street, where the neighbors knew too much about the Nolans. While Katie was thinking about looking for another place, something else happened, and they had to move right away. The thing that finally drove them from Lorimer Street was stark, raw sex. Only it was very innocent, looked at in the right way. One Saturday afternoon, Katie had an odd job at Gorling's, a large department store in Williamsburg. She fixed coffee and sandwiches for the Saturday night supper that the boss gave the girls in lieu of overtime money. Johnny was at union headquarters waiting for a job to find him. Sissy wasn't working that day. Knowing that the children would be left alone locked in the rooms, she decided to keep them company. She knocked at the door, calling out that she was Aunt Sissy. Francie opened the door on the chain to make sure before she let her in. The children swarmed over Sissy, smothering her with hugs. They loved her. To them, she was a beautiful lady who always smelled sweet, wore beautiful clothes, and brought them amazing presents. Today, she brought a sweet-smelling cedar cigar box, several sheets of tissue paper, some red and some white, and a jar of paste. They sat around the kitchen table and went to work decorating the box. Sissy outlined circles on the paper with a quarter, and Francie cut them out. Sissy showed her how to make them into little paper cups by molding the circles around the end of a pencil. When they had a lot of cups made, Sissy drew a heart on the box cover. The bottom of each red cup was given a dab of paste, and the cup was pasted on the penciled heart. The heart was filled in with red cups. The rest of the lid was filled in with white. When the top was finished, it looked like a bed of closely packed white carnations with a heart of red ones. The sides were filled in with white cups and the inside lined with red tissue. You never could tell it had been a cigar box. It was that beautiful. The box took up most of the afternoon. Sissy had a chop suey date at five and she got ready to leave. Francie clung to her and begged her not to go. Sissy hated to leave, yet she didn't want to miss her date. She searched in her purse for something to amuse them in her absence. They stopped at her knee, 
they stood at her knee, helping her look. Francie spied a cigarette box and pulled it out. On the cover was a picture of a man laying on a couch, knees crossed, one foot dangling in the air, and smoking a cigarette, which made a big smoke ring around his head. In the ring was a picture of a girl, with her hair in her eyes, and her bust popping out of her dress. The name on the box was American Dreams. <laughs> it was out of the stock at Sissy's factory. The children clamored for the box. Sissy reluctantly let them have it after explaining the box contained cigarettes and was only to hold and to look at and not under any circumstances to be opened. They must not touch the seals, she said. After she left, the children amused themselves for a time by staring at the picture. They shook the box. A dull, swishing, mysterious sound resulted. They is snakes in there and not zingarettes, decided Neely. No, corrected Francie, worms are in there, live ones. They argued, Francie saying the box was too small for snakes and Neely insisting that they were rolled up snakes like herring in a glass jar. Curiosity grew to such a pitch that Sissy's instructions were forgotten. The seals were so lightly pasted, it was a simple matter to pull them off. Francie opened the box. There was a sheet of soft, dulled tinfoil over the contents. Francie lifted the foil carefully. Neely prepared to crawl under the table if the snakes became active. But there were neither snakes, worms, nor cigarettes in the box, and its contents were very uninteresting. After trying to devise some simple games, Francie and Neely lost interest, clumsily tied the contents of the box to a string, trailed the string out of the window, and finally secured the string by shutting the window on it. Excuse me. They then took turns jumping on the denuded box and became so absorbed in breaking it into bits, they forgot all about the string hanging out of the window. Consequently, there was a great surprise waiting for Johnny when he sauntered home to get a fresh dicky and collar for his evening's job. He took one look and his face burned with shame. He told Katie when she got home. Katie questioned Francie closely and found out everything. Sissy was condemned. That night, after the children had been put to bed and Johnny was away working, Katie sat in her dark kitchen with blushes coming and going. Johnny went about his work with a dull feeling that the world had come to an end. Evie came over later in the evening and she and Katie discussed Sissy. That's the end, Katie, said Evie, the very end. What Sissy does is her own business until her own business makes a thing like this happen. I've got a growing girl, so have you. We mustn't let Sissy come into our homes again. She's bad and there's no getting around it. She's good in many ways, temporized Katie. You say that after what she did to you today? Well, I guess you're right. Only don't tell mother. She doesn't know how Sissy lives, and Sissy is her eye apple. 
When Johnny came home, Katie told him that Sissy was never to come into their house again. Johnny sighed and said he guessed that was the only right thing to do. Johnny and Katie talked away the night, and in the morning, they had their plans all made for moving when the end of the month came. Katie found a janitor place on Grand Street in Williamsburg. She took up the tin can bank when they moved. There was a little over $8 in it. Two had to go to the movers. The rest was put back when the can was nailed down in the new home. Again, Mary Romley came and sprinkled the flat with holy water. Again, there was the settling process and the establishing of trust or credit at the neighborhood stores. There was signed regret that the new flat, there was resigned regret that the new flat was not as nice as their Lorimer Street home. They lived on the top floor instead of the ground floor. There was no stoop as a store occupied the store floor of the house. There was no bathroom and the toilet was in the hall and shared by two families. The only bright spot was that the roof was theirs. By an unwritten agreement, the roof belonged to the people who lived on the top floor, as the yard belonged to the people who lived on the first floor. Another advantage was that there was no one living overhead to make vibrations on the ceiling and cause the Wellsbach gas mantle to crumble into powder. While Katie was arguing with the movers, Johnny took Francie up on the roof. She saw a whole new world. Not far away was the lovely span of the Williamsburg Bridge. Across the East River, like a fairy city made of silver cardboard, the skyscrapers loomed cleanly. There was the Brooklyn Bridge further away, like an echo of the nearer bridge. It's pretty, said Francie. It's pretty the same way pictures of in the country are pretty. I go over that bridge sometimes when I go to work, Johnny said. Francie looked at him in wonder. He went over that magic bridge and still talked and looked like always? She couldn't get over it. She put out her hand and touched his arm. Surely, the wonderful experience of going over that bridge would make him feel different. She was disappointed because his arm felt as it had always felt. At the child's touch, Johnny put his arm around her and smiled down at her. How old are you, prima donna? Six, going on seven. Why, you'll be going to school in September. No, mama said I must wait until next year till Neely's old enough so we can start together. Why? So we can help each other against the older kids who might lick us if there was only one. <laughs> Your mother thinks of everything. Francie turned around and looked at the other roofs. Nearby was one with a pigeon coop on it. The pigeons were safely locked up, but the pigeon owner, a youth of 17, stood on the edge of the roof with a long bamboo stick. It had a rag on the end, and the boy stood waving the stick in circles. Another flock of pigeons was flying around in a circle. 
One of them left the group to follow the flying rag. The boy lowered the stick cautiously and the silly pigeon followed the rag. The boy grabbed him and stuck him in the coop. Francie was distressed. The boy stole a pigeon. And tomorrow someone will steal one of his, said Johnny. But the poor pigeon taken away from his relations. Maybe he's got children. Tears came into her eyes. I wouldn't cry, said Johnny. Maybe the pigeon wanted to get away from his relatives. If he doesn't like the new coop, he'll fly back to the old one when he gets out again. Francie was consoled. They didn't say anything for a long time. They stood hand in hand on the roof's edge, looking across the river to New York. Finally, Johnny said, as if to himself, Seven years. What, Papa? Your mama and I have been married seven years already. Was I there when you got married? No. I was here, though, when Neely came. That's right. Johnny went back to thinking out loud. Married seven years, and we've had three homes. This will be my last home. Francie didn't notice that he said, my last home, instead of our last home.